amazing. Amen. Amen. Well, I tell you, sir, it is an easy task. We have so many wonderful gifts and gifted individuals here in New City Family Church. Let's lift our hearts to the Lord. Father, we just thank you so much for your love, your grace, your kindness, your mercy towards us. We pray, Father, that our hearts will be receptive to your word today, that it would bring or produce transformation in our lives, that we'll be a light in darkness individually and collectively. Bless the pastor this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Claude. And, you know, I felt called to or just felt uh, this this morning that, you know, there are, there's a lot of sorrow. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of heartbreak out there involving surrounding the, the whole Trayvon Martin Zimmerman issue. And I want to just say, as people that are in Christ, people that are Christians, let's pray that God would use us to bring redemption, restoration, reconciliation, peace, comfort into our community. Uh, it is a very tough situation, and there's a lot of there's a there's a lot of emotion out there right now. And and I just want to say, we worship a God of peace. We worship a God of justice. We worship a God who's got it under control. And we just pray that he brings peace and he brings justice and he brings comfort and he brings redemption and reconciliation into that whole situation for everyone involved. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Um, We're back in our series, Who Are You? We're going through the book of Ephesians. Today's sermon is called Welcome to the Family. Um, you know, when it comes to questions of identity, if you've ever been misidentified or somebody's thought you were someone else, it can cause a little bit of confusion. And um, I was thinking this week about an incident where I was—I had to go over to the federal courthouse. Um, I was getting ready to, to try a case in the federal courthouse in front of a federal judge. And before you do that, as an attorney, you have to go in and you have to be sworn in uh, in front of the judge. So... Uh, I went over there, put on my suit and tie, got all dialed in and went over there, kind of excited about this opportunity, went uh, up to the clerk's office, walked into the clerk's office and the clerk was standing there. I said, uh, hi, my name is Brent Rome and I am here to be uh, sworn in I've, uh, today. I've got an appointment and the clerk spoke to me in a way that I found a little surprising. Uh, she she spoke to me as if I had a hard you know, trouble hearing and she also spoke to me as if I had trouble understanding English. She said, uh, okay, you can wait in the lobby and we will call you when it's your turn. And I thought, that's a little weird, but I'm going to go over here, hang out in the lobby. So I'm standing in the lobby and, you know, 10, 15 minutes go by. I've got an appointment, you know, I mean, I'm supposed to, um, you know, go there. So a few minutes later, I I walk back in and, and as I walk back in, um, the, the clerk, you know, approached me somewhat briskly. And, and, th- and at this point, the bailiff also, you know, you know, the bailiff is the guy with the white shirt and the star, you know, the badge. Um, so both of them comes over and, and, and I said, I just wanted to, and as I'm trying to say it again, the bailiff says, sir, you can wait in the lobby and we'll call you when it's your turn. So I walk back in the lobby. I'm going, this is weird. Um, um, in fact, my co-counsel from that case is here today. Good to see you, Chair. Um, so uh, I'm standing out, out uh, in the lobby going, this is a very odd, you know, this is not what I was expecting. 
And as I'm standing there, I start to take in the surroundings, okay? And I notice that the lobby is filled with people. And as I kind of look and sort of really take it in, I notice that the people that are in the lobby are from various different countries. I hear a number of different languages being spoken. I see people with, you know, garb from different continents. You know, and it's pretty clear that this is a group of people that are new to the United States. And I start to put it together. These folks are here to be sworn in as citizens of the United States. Mr. Clerk and Ms. Ms. Clerk and Mr. Bailiff think that I am here to be sworn in as a citizen of the United States. They're very adamantly explaining to me that my turn will come, right? So I thought, I'm going, that's exactly what I'm, I'm, I'm positive. So I walk back into the clerk's office. And this time, of course, it's like, it's sir, you know, like, you know, a little bit. And I go, hold on, guys. I have a case in front of Judge Weber next week. I'm here to be sworn in as an officer of the court to, you know, perform my duties as a lawyer. And they both kind of looked at me and sort of blinked. And they went, oh, okay, you just go up to floor 15. He's waiting for you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so sometimes when we are misidentified, you know, it causes confusion, right? Sometimes we misidentify ourselves. We let others identify us. We believe what they say about us. We may believe what we think about ourselves under particular circumstances. We may be informed by those circumstances to identify ourselves in ways that aren't exactly accurate, that aren't exactly true. We don't always tell the truth about ourselves. Other people don't always tell the truth about us. Sometimes we don't know exactly who we are. And the book of Ephesians is directed explicitly at explaining from God's perspective who you are. Who are you according to God? Um, We mentioned last week uh, that Ephesians was written by um, Paul, the apostle Paul. There's just an image of him here from a, a medieval church. We don't know what he looked really look like. Somebody pointed out to me last week that there's something very strange about his forehead in this picture. But, uh, but nevertheless, uh, he, was a, he was a very important figure. Uh, he was an apostle. He was, a, he was a, a Roman citizen, but he was also a, a Pharisee. He was a Jew. He was a devout religious Jew who had been persecuting the Christians, but who was converted um, by God on the road to Damascus, where he was on his way to persecute other Christians. Uh, and God reoriented his life, changed his life completely, put him on the path. He became one of the most important figures in, in Christian history. And he wrote a letter to uh, the Ephesians. This is a copy of the manuscript, one of the, uh, the manuscript of that letter. There are hundreds of, of manuscripts of that particular letter. That it was written not only to the, the church in Ephesus, but it was written to, it was a circular letter. So he, he wrote it and it circulated to all the churches in the region. Um, and we are exploring that letter Today and, and in this whole series. So um, let's jump straight into the letter. We're, in, we're still in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 through uh, 3 and 4 say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I'm going to just stop right there, just stop and just contemplate. The ramifications of that statement. Blessed be God, the, fa- uh, uh, be the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who chose us in Him 
before the foundation of the world. First point that I want to draw your attention to is that you were chosen. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are in Christ, you were chosen before the foundation of the world for adoption by God. Go ahead and put that slide up there. Um, You were chosen before the foundation of the world for adoption by God. We all know what it's like to be chosen. We all have memories of the playground, uh, you know, the kickball. You know, you're, you're out there at recess. You're all lined up. There's two captains. Everybody's standing there, and the captains are going, I choose you, I choose you, I choose you, right? And you're standing there hoping that you're not the only one. That's the, the last one chosen, right? You may also have experienced, I've experienced on the other end. Remember, there was a time I was playing basketball with some friends um, and, and some new people that I'd never met. We were out on the playground. We're warming up, and for some reason on that particular day, I am sinking shots left and right, and I'm a terrible basketball player. But that day, something clicked. That, that moment, something clicked. So when it came time to choose teams, the two captains got up, and the, the first captain, who didn't know me, chose me first. I was number one. And I thought, this is not going to go well, because this guy thinks that I can play basketball. Um, and I was just thinking, well, maybe the, maybe the luck will continue through the game. Unfortunately, the luck did not continue through the game. I threw nothing but bricks the rest of the day. The captain of the team's looking at me like, what happened? Uh, sometimes we're, we're chosen and, 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 you know, people have the wrong impression about us. The scripture tells us that before we did anything, before we existed, before anything existed, God chose us. He reached out to us. In our hearts, in our minds, sometimes we think of ourselves as reaching out to God, as pursuing God. Paul says, God has been thinking about you from before the foundation of the world. Before the universe was created, however many billions of years the universe is, he was thinking about you. When the pyramids were being built, God was thinking about you. When Moses was leading the children out of Egypt... God was thinking about you. When David slew Goliath, God was thinking about you individually. God has had you on his mind from before the foundation of the world. This is a radical departure from the thought that is prevalent today that we are merely a mass of accidental molecules that have slammed together without any purpose, without any meaning, without any direction. And we are just getting through life and then it will disappear and it will be a vapor, right? This scripture is profound in that it pushes back hard on that concept and says, no, God chose you from before the foundation of the world. He's interested in you. Amen? God, in his love, in his mercy, in his grace, wanted to pull you into his family. Um, now, here's a, a passage. We're going to get deep today because we're, we're going through a passage that has caused a lot of uh, difficulty in understanding, and I'm going to try to clear, uh, make it clear. Um, the next scripture in Ephesians says, In love, he, pre- he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So this, this word predestined, this is, an, this is a word that comes up in the scripture several times, and it has caused a lot of uh, controversy, Uh, surrounding the word, because some people interpret it one way and some people interpret it another way. I'm going to try to break it down for you. So please 
pray for me right now? I'm going to try to break the history of the, of the conflict over this word down for you in the next T-minus four minutes. Okay, ready? Um, there are two ways that people understand this idea in the Scripture. This idea comes up throughout the Scripture. And there are two ways that people understand it. One theological term is called monergism. Monergism. The other one is called synergism. All right? These are the two camps that try to understand, that try to interpret this word. Monergism is the idea that mono means one, alone. Monergism is the idea that God reaches down to, to us when we are dead in sin and we cannot do anything about it. And he pulls us up and breathes life into us. And we don't have anything to do or say about it. Synergism is the idea that God reaches down to us, breathes a life into everyone sufficient so that they can respond back to him. He reaches down, they grab him, they grab a hold of him, and he pulls them out. And so the, them grabbing his hand is the sort of synergistic part of it where two people are acting together. God is reaching down and the person is reaching back. Now, this has divided people. It's a, it's a fine distinction, but it, it has divided people over the years. And I won't go through the whole history of it. Um, but uh, there, the early Christian writers, some of them had a more monergistic view. Some of them had a more synergistic view. Uh, all the way down from Origen, uh, Chrysostom, Augustine. All, you know, in all these writings, you can go back and, and try to understand how they viewed it. Um, then in... Uh, then in, in about the 1500s, uh, uh, a scholar named John Calvin wrote about it. And then uh, one of his followers, one of his students, a guy named Jacob Arminius, he responded to Calvin. And they, they both, Calvin was a monergist, Jacob Arminius was a synergist, okay? Are you, we following here? Are we tracking? Or have we lost everyone? Um, so these two guys uh, both had their writings and then they both died. Well, their followers did what a lot of Christians do, uh, and that is they got so excited about their particular interpretation that they decided that that for the next 1,500 years or or 1,000 years, rather, they would fight it out. Um, In 1610, uh, Arminius' followers presented a paper in Holland, and they laid down the five points that they thought described God's predestination, God's election. Uh, And then about eight or nine years later, the anti-remonstrants, the people that were against him, them, they laid out their five points. And their five points contradicted the first guy's five points, right? Are we all unified in Christian love at this point? Amen. Um, so here's how it breaks down. And I'm not going to get way into it. But these are the basically the two camps that try to understand this idea of predestination. Arminianism, the followers of Jacob Arminian, Arminius said, we have free will. Uh, God's election is conditional. It's conditioned upon our response. Um, Jesus, universal atonement means Jesus' d- death was for everyone. Resistible grace means that, you know, you have the option to choose or not choose. Uh, and fall from grace means that you can eventually, if you want to, turn away from God. Five points of Calvinism that, that was, uh, you know, that um, rebutted that was total depravity. We're totally dead in our sin. We cannot choose God. Unconditional election, it doesn't matter what we do. God chooses us. We have no say. Limited atonement, Jesus' death was only for those who would be elect. Irresistible grace, um, we don't, we, we, we can't resist his grace. His grace pulls us out. 
perseverance of the saints. Once Jesus takes you in, he can't lose you. Um, and so th- this is, these are the two camps, the two theological camps. Okay, you can clear that slide. Um, the thing I want to say is this. Both of these camps fall within the larger family of the, of the Christian family. All right? The, the Arminians are more, if, you're, if you come from the background of a Catholic or a Methodist or Nazarene, Foursquare, Free Will Baptist, Church of Christ, Assemblies of God, Pentecostal, you're, going to be, you're probably more uh, familiar with the Arminian camp. If you come from a background of Presbyterian, Reformed Baptist, um, uh, a, a variety of Reformed traditions, then you're going to come from a more uh, Calvinist background. And what I want to say is this. The fact that Christians have used this issue to separate themselves from worshiping together for the last, you know, several centuries is a travesty. And in our church, this is our position, in our church, this is an in-house discussion. This is a discussion that reasonable people can, can disagree about and love each other and worship each other. And if we don't particularly precisely understand the nuts and bolts of God's grace coming out and you know, extending himself to us, that's okay. Um, if you want to do more research on the topic, I have a couple recommendations for you. Uh, the first one is Why I Am Not an Arminian by Robert A. Peterson and Michael D. Williams and the companion volume Why I Am Not a Calvinist by Jerry L. Walls and Joseph R. Dongle. I would recommend you read both of these books. When you have it figured out, come and talk to me and explain it to your pastor. Hallelujah. What we agree about is this. God loved us before we loved him. When we were dead in sin, God was reaching out to us. When we were incapable of of loving him, he was loving us. He's been in pursuit of us long before we were in pursuit of him. And this idea, I think, is beautifully embodied in the children's song that says, Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because... He first loved me. We agree that God reaches out and loves us by his grace, adopts us before the foundation of the world. He loves us. He wants to bring us into the family. Amen? Amen. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Um, So let's, let's move forward into how does he do this? How does he adopt us into his family? If we look at Ephesians 1, uh, 4... It says, in love he predestined us for adoption. For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. I love this passage, right? Because it talks to us about how God adopted us. God adopted us as sons through Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his, through Jesus' blood. This is a reference to Jesus hanging on the cross and dying for us. So our, our adoption is effectuated through Christ's sacrifice for us. Now this is huge, this is profound, and I want to explain why. In, in the natural world, where there's an adoption, an adoption is not, it, it's not foster care, It's not guardianship. 
It is a complete transformation of the identity, the legal status, and the identity of the one who is adopted. Okay? That person becomes a part of the family. Um, you can go ahead and put the next point up there, which you were adopted by the father through the sacrifice of, of his only son. What this is, what, what's interesting about this, there was, there was a case in 2009 down in Mississippi. It's called Gartrell versus Gartrell. And in this case, there was a husband and a wife, a man and a woman who got married. They both had been married before. They both had children from a prior marriage. Each had two children from a prior marriage, okay? They got married. They're now a blended family. They've got, he's got two biological kids. She's got two biological kids. And because they became a blended family, the dad adopted her two children as his own, okay? So they became adopted into his family. They became his adopted children, all right? Several years later, the kids grew up. Several years later, the father died. Mr. Mr. Gartrell died. Uh, and several years after that, Mr. Gartrell's mother died, okay? She would have been the grandmother of these two kids, by, you know, biologically. And by adoption, she would have been the grandmother of these other two kids. And when the grandmother died, her will said that all of my inheritance, all of my estate will go down to my kids. And she had two kids. She had William, who was the dad, and then she had another daughter named Kay. And, you know, go down to my kids. And if they've predeceased me, if they've already died, it'll go down to their children. Okay. So half of the inheritance came down, skipped William because William had already died. And then it spread out to all four of the children, the two biological children and the two adopted children. You tracking? Got it? So, the sister, William's sister, said, now hold on a second. Those two adopted kids, those aren't her real grandchildren. They shouldn't be getting this inheritance. Those kids don't deserve that, right? And so she filed a lawsuit. And she filed a lawsuit. The case was heard. Then it was appealed up to the appeals court in Mississippi. And then it was appealed again all the way up to the Mississippi Supreme Court. That William's sister was saying, these adopted kids don't deserve a dime, right? And what the Mississippi Supreme Court said was very interesting. It said two things. Number one, those kids are as much a part of that family as the biological kids. Because as a matter of law, they are now children of that man who passed away. That's number one. And number two is, that adoption has nothing to do with you. You need to keep your nose out of their business. And that established very firmly in the case law that when a child is adopted, he becomes, he or she becomes a part of the family into which he or she is adopted, right? And what we see in that Gartrell case is something that we would expect to see, that a biological person, a person that came naturally, might have an issue with somebody who came by adoption, right? But in The redemption of Christ, it is Christ's own sacrifice that brings us in to adoption. What's amazing about that is that the scripture describes um, Christ, describes Jesus as the the only begotten son of God, right? The only son of God. And 
this only son of God who, who the scripture says is, is an heir to the glory, to the, to the power, to everything of the father, was willing to lay all that down to become like us so that we could be adopted into the family wherein now we are joint heirs. The scripture says joint heirs. We share in all of the glory, all of the attributes, all of the privileges, all of the benefits of being a child of God. You see what I'm saying? I'm saying that the natural son gave his life so that the strangers could become children, could become brothers and sisters in the family. You see what I'm saying? I find that to be absolutely powerful. Romans eight seventeen says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We become adopted into the family, adopted by God, by the Father, through the sacrifice of the Son. That's mind-blowing, man. I mean, you, you know, chew on that all week <laughs> and then call me because that is huge. That is huge. Um, it reminds me of the song that says, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood, joint heirs with Jesus, it says. Joint heirs. Do you see what that means? That's like we're the two adopted children over here, you know, and we became part of the family. We're joint heirs. We are heirs to the inheritance of God's glory, which he, the scripture says he lavished upon us. He lavished upon us according to his abundant richness and grace, right? Because it's, it's infinite. It's infinite. And that's the other part of it. You know, when, when in the natural world, when a natural child is disputing the inheritance, it's because the person that, that died only had a limited amount of money or land or property, right? We're talking about God. God is infinite. Oh, he's got an infinite amount of grace and love and mercy and blessings which he bestows upon his children through adoption. Amen. I'm excited about that. Are you, are you as excited as I am? Um, Soren Kierkegaard says that God creates out of nothing. Wonderful, you say. Yes, to be sure. But he does what is still more wonderful. He makes saints out of sinners. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. He reached out, pulled us in through his sacrifice so that we be, could become children of God, so that we could become joint heirs with Christ. I love that. Number three, as an adopted child, you take on the responsibilities of the family into which you were adopted. This is what we'll get into as we get closer to the end of Ephesians. The first three chapters are more about identity, and the last three chapters are more about what you do now that you know who you are, right? But I just want to touch on it for a minute here. You, you take on the responsibilities. Now that you are a member of the family of God, there are certain responsibilities and duties and obligations that you do out of love, out of love to the Father who adopted you. Amen? Um, I don't know if you ever have heard this, but I, when I was a kid, you know, sometimes my dad would say, I was, you know, he would ask me to do something or not do something, and I would say, why? And he was like, that's the way we do it. You're a Rome. Romes do it this way, right? And that was, that was an answer. That was the answer that said, you know, this is how we do things. And if you're, you know, as a member of our family, this is how we expect you to do things. Um, sometimes, and, and let me say this. It's not as if, you know, I was going to get kicked out of the family if I didn't do it that way. But he was just showing me what the expectations are, right? And I find myself saying the same thing to my boys. Sometimes it's not easy to explain why we do things a certain way, except that that's just the way we do them. <laughs> you know, we do them that way because that's who we are. Um, 
you know, when I was a kid, I had this image in my mind of God being willing to and sort of ready to uh, kick me out of the family any time, the family of God, any time I messed up. So I was sort of, I I don't know if any of you ever experienced this when you were a kid, or maybe now, uh, but I was in a constant state of repentance. Constant state. Lord, forgive me for that thought. Forgive me for doing that. Forgive me for saying that. To the point, because because the thing is, I thought that if I said, did, or thought something, that if, if, if I died in that moment, or if the Lord came back in that moment, boom, I'm out. I'm gone. I'm kicked out. In fact, I got to the point where I would almost say, Lord, I'm about to do something. Can you forgive me in advance? You who are timeless, you who are outside of time, you can forgive me for something I'm about to do too, can't you? Amen. That's not what the Scripture is teaching us. The Scripture is teaching us that we have certain responsibilities that, are, that we grow into, that we grow into when we become members of the family of God. Let me read you Romans 6. Do, not, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It says, we were buried, therefore, uh, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. When you become a member of the family of God, when you give yourself to Christ, you are cloaked in Christ, and you start to, and you start to pursue a life as a child of God, as an adopted child of God, you walk in newness of life. That means you have a new identity. That means you have a new outlook. That means you have a new father. You have a new inheritance. You have a new perspective. You have a new hope. You have a new joy. You have a new life. Amen? We walk out our identity. When we understand who we are, we walk that out. Now, we don't do it perfectly. And when God disciplines or instructs or, you know, uh, addresses us, it's not to frighten us or kick us out. It's to help us conform into the image of his son. We can become more and more like Christ, right? And not only does that uh, reveal and glorify God to others, but it brings us joy and satisfaction. God instructs us so that we can have joy. He doesn't give us, he doesn't limit us and restrict us so that we'll be, you know, tied up in bunches and in knots. He gives us limitations and and restrictions to bring us greater joy. Amen? And we're going to talk more about that. So I want to just close with this. Uh, There's a quote from E.W. Tozer. It says, To move across from one sort of a person to another is the essence of repentance. The liar becomes truthful, the thief honest, the lewd pure, the proud humble. The whole moral texture of the life is altered. The thoughts, the desires, the affections are transformed and no man, and the man is no longer what he had been before. To those of you who have been walking with Christ for some time, will note the difference, the distinction between where you were before you committed your life to Christ and where you are now in terms of the way you think, in terms of the way you, what you talk about, in terms of what you do, in terms of your own expectations of yourself. It's transformative. And not only is it transformative, it is absolutely liberating. It is absolutely liberating and it brings so much joy. So I want to just say to, to you, with respect to the question, the central question of this passage or of this uh, sermon, who are you? 
You are a new creature. You are a child of God. You were chosen. You were beloved. You are adored. You are pulled into his family. You're a new creature in him. You are a child of the Lord. Welcome to the family. Amen. Let's all stand and pray. I don't know if this excites you as much as it does me, but I like it blows my mind to think about these kinds of ideas that, that God is, is interested in and wants us to be a part of his family and is in pursuit of us, even when we're not in pursuit of him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. We thank you, Lord, that you have brought comfort and peace into our hearts. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word, uh, that you are calling us, that you are drawing us, that you are seeking us, that you are choosing us, that you are restoring us, that you're changing us, you're transforming us to be, um, to be more like you, to be transformed into the image of your son, that we could glorify you, that we could bring transformation to others in the world, that we can have joy, that we can have liberty in Christ. Father, we thank you for this. We worship you. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.